Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I'll be reading our scripture passage today, which is Revelation 2, 8 through 11. This can be found on page 965 of your pew Bibles, and it'll be on the screen as well. Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Well, good morning, everyone. I realized right before I came up here that I totally forgot in, the, uh, in everything that was going on before the service to put on my normal microphone. So I'm going to preach with this today, and we're just going to roll with it. Thank you, Colton, for reading for us. We're going to continue our series this morning through the letters to the churches in Revelation. And today we are looking at the second address there to the church in Smyrna. Now, if you've been on social media or watched the news in the last two weeks, then you've probably come across a particular audition video for the show America's Got Talent with Simon Cowell and others. This video showed a young woman by the name of Jane Marcheski, uh, known as Nightbird, that's her musical name, performing her song, It's Okay, for the judges. And this video has captivated people around the country. Although she has an amazing voice, it's not her singing, though, that has captivated the hearts of so many. It's her story. Jane has suffered through three bouts of cancer in the last five years in her breasts, spine, and liver, all before the age of 30. And on top of all of that, last year as she was in the the thick of another bout with cancer, her husband left her. This all resulted in her having a catatonic breakdown, which left her in crippling physical pain, unable to really move or speak very much for three whole months at the end of last year. And yet in the midst of all of that, there she was on our television screens singing a song entitled, It's Okay. It's okay? How in the world can you say it's okay? That's what I want to ask her. How could we ever say it's okay when staring down similar circumstances? I think there's only two possible ways that you can say it's okay in the face of suffering like this. The first way is to say it's okay, meaning that things will eventually turn around and I'll be able to, in the meantime, defy my suffering and enjoy life. This way of saying it's okay is sheer optimism, a raw belief that everything will work out in the end. But what happens when the cancer comes back again, this time stronger? Or when the depression won't lift? Or when the money doesn't come through? 
You see, this sheer optimism is not based upon anything sturdy. If you say it's okay based on blind faith about your circumstances, then you won't last long when suffering strikes you. But there's another way to say it's okay in the face of suffering. You can say it's okay, meaning no matter what happens to me in this life, I have a hope stronger than this life that tells me it will be okay. This way of saying it's okay is more than defiant shallow optimism because it's rooted in something outside the tides of our ever-changing circumstances. And so as we approach the address to the church in Smyrna this morning, Jesus wants to look each of us in the eye and draw near to bring comfort. This address is one out of only two of the seven in which there's no rebuke for the church. Jesus comes here only to comfort. To this church in Smyrna beginning to suffer and on the precipice of even greater suffering, Jesus comes to them as he comes to us to tell us this morning, it's okay. Now last week, Noah told us, as he opened up the the first address to the church in Ephesus, that Ephesus was like Las Vegas in terms of the size of the city and its ethos toward life. Smyrna was an equally large city located very close to Ephesus, comparable to Ephesus in terms of size and influence. But Smyrna was known particularly for its unique loyalty to the Roman Empire and to her emperor. In fact, way back in 195 BC, before Rome had ascended to the status of a world empire, the people of Smyrna were one of the first kind of city regions to give their loyalty to Rome. And the city was also one of the first to build an official altar of worship to Caesar. This town was charged with a religious-like fervor for their country and for its leader. And so it's into that context that Jesus speaks these words in verse 9. Would you look at verse 9 with me again? He says to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, when I was in, in middle school, I went to Philadelphia Eagles training camp with some of my friends. So I'm not as much of a Steelers fan now as I was when I was in sixth grade. When I was in sixth grade, I was a diehard Steelers fan. And it just so happened to be that this was the year after they had won the Super Bowl. And so I thought it would be a great idea to waltz into Eagles training camp sporting my Pittsburgh Steelers Super Bowl 40 championship t-shirt. That was a mistake, as you might guess. You see, I wore my Steelers gear all the time in the neutral territory of Harrisburg, but at Eagles camp, I was not as comfortable I realized very quickly by the judging looks and rude comments that are so typical of Philadelphia fans that it was not a safe place to wear my Steelers gear. I was in the belly of the beast identifying with the enemy. Now the church in Smyrna was beginning to feel like it was in enemy territory. Like they were in the belly of the beast identifying with an enemy of Caesar 
the Lord Jesus. You see, at the time of the writing of this letter, Christians in Smyrna were facing persecution, poverty, and slander by the Jewish people in Smyrna. You see, after Jesus' resurrection, Christians maintained relative protection in the Roman Empire to worship as they pleased because they were viewed as a sect of Judaism. And so under Roman law, Jewish people had the ability to worship their God and not to offer sacrifices to Caesar. And so Christians, as a sect of Judaism, got grandfathered into that protection. But as we saw in our study of the book of Acts, the Jewish people were very quick to put separation between themselves and the early church. They often opposed the Christian church, giving them over to the Romans. That's likely the same thing happening to the church here in Smyrna. Due to Jewish slander, the Christians are beginning to feel serious cultural pressure and persecution for their refusal to worship Caesar as their protections are being revoked. And on top of that, Christians likely could not engage in many lines of work in the city of Smyrna because so much of the industry of the city was tied in to the worship of Caesar. Hence, as you see in verse 9, their poverty. This was a church that was beginning to really feel the pressure of living in enemy territory. And with that context of mounting opposition and persecution in mind, let's turn to the clear command that Jesus gives to this church in verse 10. Would you read that with me? He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Do you see that dual command there of Jesus to the churches in light of their suffering? One at the beginning of verse 10 and then halfway down. Do not fear, be faithful. But notice that the suffering that they are commanded not to fear is not just present tense suffering. It's not just this currently mounting persecution, but it's also future suffering the suffering that they are about to face. You see, while the situation was already uncomfortable for this church, it was about to get a whole lot worse. And as it says in verse 10, some of them were about to be thrown in prison. And as we know from the later history of the city of Smyrna, what that means is likely prison was just a stop-off on the way to execution. Many Christians were, were martyred in Smyrna, including the famous bishop Polycarp in the middle of the second century. And so Jesus looks this church in Smyrna in the eye and he tells them the truth. Your suffering is about to get a lot worse. And now notice this too. If you look at verse 10 again, who is the agent of this church of the church's impending suffering? Who is the one that's going to bring it about? You see there, halfway down verse 10, it's the devil who is about to throw some of them into prison. You see, the same accuser 
who animated the Jews to accuse the church before the people of Smyrna, such that they're called a synagogue of Satan in verse 9, also stands behind the church's imprisonment and execution for the name of Jesus. But the devil is not the only actor here in verse 10. See, if you look at that little phrase after it says that the devil threw, it was about to throw some of them into prison, it gives us the reason why. It says, that you may be tested. That shows why the, the Christians will continue to suffer. And you see, that's, that's interesting. Satan, the great enemy of all who claim the name of Christ, doesn't want to simply test the church He wants to destroy the church by tempting the people of God away from following Jesus. He's a ravaging lion seeking to tear the church of Jesus Christ limb from limb, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 8. So who is the one here doing the testing? Whose purpose is it that this church in Smyrna would be tested? I would argue that it's God himself. You see, God is active in the suffering of this church for his good purpose, even as that suffering is carried out by the evil one. He is using this horrible suffering as a time of refinement for the good of his church. He's using it to test his church. Will they they continue to follow Jesus and be further refined, or will they fall away? Now, church, I I can't look at you today like Jesus looked at the church in Smyrna and tell you that suffering will definitively get worse in your lifetime. I don't have the ability to see the future. I don't know that. I can't look at you even and say that the suffering that you will face, you will face specifically because you claim the name of Jesus Christ. We all very well may at some point soon suffer because we claim the name of Jesus Christ, Or we might not. But what I can say to you with confidence this morning is that your faith in Jesus Christ will inevitably be tested through trials. The suffering we face in this life may not be directly related to our profession of faith in Jesus, but every trial is an opportunity to show forth our our devotion to Jesus and to grow in faithfulness to him and relationship with him. That means that your wayward children are a test. Your illness is a test Your unshakable depression is a test. Your financial catastrophe is a test. Your job loss is a test. Oftentimes, though, as we are tested by suffering, we are tempted to give up on our Lord Jesus. We're tempted to give up on everything about him. And that's precisely why Jesus looks at us as the church in this passage and says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Suffering is not something ultimately to fear, but is an opportunity to grow deeper in relationship and faithfulness to Jesus. Now, before we move on, 
as a sort of a sidebar here, but related to all of this. Do you see how Christianity gives us an honest and purposeful view of our suffering? Now, you may hear me say that our suffering is a test and think that this is some sort of cruel, sadistic game set up by God, that we are all pawns on his big, giant chessboard that he simply moves around in order to test us. But Christian suffering actually, I would argue, reveals to us the goodness of our God. See, Christianity teaches us that suffering is both very real and very purposeful. Suffering is real in that it is not an illusion. So Christianity crushes the optimistic viewpoint that says it's okay in the face of suffering. The, the, the view number one that we talked about at the beginning of the, ser- of the sermon. In one sense, Christianity looks at suffering and says, that's not okay. It is an unwelcome intruder into God's world, but because of human sin, it is present in our world. We can't run from it, and in this life, suffering may not let up. I just recently watched a, a TED Talk on YouTube called, Am I Dying? The Honest Answer. And in this TED Talk features a veteran EMT from New York City who, who speaks of the way that he would talk to patients whenever he would arrive at a scene and a patient would, would ask him the question, am I about to die? And beforehand, the EMT thought that it was right and good to lie to that person, that that, that, that person couldn't stand to face their own death. And so he would say, no, you're not about to die. But the longer he became and worked as an EMT, he began to realize that people needed to be able to face the truth of their own death. And so he began to tell people the truth when they asked him the question, am I about to die? And there's a goodness in that. And friends, I think it's that same goodness that causes Jesus to tell us the truth about our suffering. Jesus doesn't guarantee that our lives won't look like absolute train wrecks by the time we come to our death. Our savings could be gone. Our children could deny the faith and disown us. And although we have our sins forgiven by God Almighty, the consequences of our actions in the past might still wreak havoc on our families. God doesn't promise us that our life circumstances will improve, that things will turn around eventually. Rather, he tells us that suffering is a real part of living in our fallen world. He doesn't sugarcoat that for us. But he also tells us that suffering is purposeful. Your suffering is not just a bad draw from the universe which is all anyone can say apart from God. Without God, suffering in our lives serves no purpose, which, is, which leads so many in our day to nihilism and to despair and to ask questions, why continue on? Why not give up in the face of horrible, meaningless suffering? And yet Christianity teaches us that God uses suffering as periods of our life to refine his people. 
And what that means is that God infuses even the most horrific parts of our lives with meaning and purpose in his plan to display his glorious and loving character and make us more resemble the beauty of Jesus. God is honest with us about our suffering, and yet he infuses it with purpose. And in this way, suffering actually serves to reveal to us the goodness of who our God is and his character. But the question that we have not asked yet is how the church can endure through such terrible suffering. Where does the church in Smyrna, where where do we get the resources not to fear, but to remain faithful in the midst of testing? Where do we get the resources to truly say, it's okay? Let's read the end of verse 10, the beginning of verse 11 again. It says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus comforts his suffering church by giving them a promise to motivate their endurance. And this promise comes to us in these verses in two images, that of the crown of life and that of protection from the second death. And so let's explore these two images. And as we do, I think we'll see clearly what the promise is for those of us who endure in following Jesus in the midst of suffering. So first, the crown of life. And that word translated crown in verse 10 is the same word used to describe the wreaths that would adorn the heads of the winners of athletic competition in those days. So if you've seen pictures of the the old Olympics from ancient Greece and those wreaths that used to crown the heads of the winners, think of that. Those who endured the grueling athletic competition and came out on top received a crown. And so the image here is of a Christian who endures faithfully in following Christ, spending everything they have and falling over the finish line and standing upon a podium and God giving them a crown. Second image here is that of the second death. And this image is derived from other Jewish writing around the time of the first century. So if you were to read other resources that Jewish people reflecting on the Old Testament were writing, that they, would, they were using this term, the second death. And the image refers to eternal death, to final death, to separation from God in hell. Now, in verse 11 in our Bibles, it says that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If you're using our pew Bibles, that's what our translation that we use says. But, but that doesn't, I don't think that gives it enough oomph. See, that phrase in the Greek is emphatic. What it's saying is the fires of hell will never, ever be able to do a thing to those who suffer faithfully and continue to follow Jesus. The powers of death and hell are powerless against the one who endures to the end. And so these two images together speak of a promise 
of victorious, triumphant life for the one who conquers by their endurance. And think about the hope this brings us in our present suffering when our life looks like death. As we stay up late in tears praying for our wayward child, as our bodies waste away to nothing because of an illness, as we pray prayers of lament over the injustice of this world, as we return evil with good, even as Christians become more maligned culturally, we are conquering. Through faithful death comes new life. And friends, we can know that this promise of life holds true for us as we look to the one who speaks this promise to us. Look at verse 8 with me. Halfway down there, it says, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Now, if you've been tracking with us through this series, then the description of Jesus there in verse 8 probably sounds very familiar to you. This verse is drawing on the image of Jesus from Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, which we looked at together a few weeks ago. And Jesus there is described as the living one, the one who lives now in the present, having conquered death and the grave, and who promises life to everyone who would follow after him. But there is one key difference between the image of Jesus in chapter 1, 17 and 18, and here in chapter 2, verse 8. And that's this. It's that here in verse 8, rather than saying he is the living one, Jesus introduces himself as the one who died and came to life. In other words, Jesus chooses to emphasize not just his resurrection life, not just his conquering, but his own suffering and death, the means by which he conquered. You see, Jesus doesn't command the church at Smyrna or us this morning to do something that he did not do himself first. Jesus conquered in the face of great suffering by remaining faithful to his father, even unto death. As a result, Jesus rose from the dead and received the crown of life. He passed the test of suffering. Now all of us who follow him in faith through the tests of this life will also conquer and receive the crown of life. We conquer by following in the way of the conqueror, by remaining faithful to our God even unto death. Jesus promises us this morning that it will be okay, but not in a purely optimistic, your life will turn around kind of way. Death is still the pathway to life. We see that in Christ himself. But Jesus promises us that it will be okay in the sense that we have a hope stronger than this life that not even death and hell can touch. Do not fear, but remain faithful in suffering because no suffering, not even death itself, can touch you if you are in Jesus Christ. 
Jane Marcheski, who we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, was able to write her song, It's Okay, because of this kind of hope in the promise of God. She wrote a short piece a few months ago about her suffering, particularly over the last months, entitled God is on the Bathroom Floor. I would highly encourage you to to go online and find it and read it later today. I'm just going to read a few short paragraphs from this hauntingly beautiful piece that she wrote here about her own suffering. She says, I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now and I'm barely past 30. I'm God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses. Sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. I have called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy, and I can't really explain it, but God is there even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself on the bathroom floor struggling to make sense of your suffering and what it means in light of following Jesus, in light of God's goodness, know that Jesus meets you there on the bathroom floor. In verse 9 of our text, it says that Jesus knows the suffering, poverty, and slander that the church is facing in Smyrna. And one of the worst things someone can say to you while you're hurting is, I know how hard it must be for you when you know that they don't have a clue, when you want to just scream out, no, you don't. And yet Jesus doesn't come to you with fake, condescending comfort. He comes as one who has been on the bathroom floor of this world. He felt the weight of human sin, pain, Injustice and suffering on his back on the cross. He knows what it is like. And he will meet you today to offer you life in the midst of death as you turn to him. Look lower, church, to the depths of human pain and suffering, and you will find Jesus there urging you on to the crown of life. Jesus urges us not to fear all that might come our way. Each step we take in faithfulness to Jesus, we receive the promise 
it's okay. He has conquered. You are conquering. You will receive the crown of life. Keep going. It's okay. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, as the infinite God, all-powerful, all-wise, have chosen to stoop down to the depths of our pain, to the depths of our suffering. Thank you, Lord, that you, in the person of Jesus Christ, have taken that upon yourself. Lord Jesus, may that picture of you as the one who died and now lives urge us on to faithful endurance in the midst of whatever trials come our way. And as this church is tested, may we be proven to be those who continue to follow you day by day, conquering as we seek you until that day when you place the crown of life on our heads. So Lord, we don't know, I don't know the suffering that many in this room are facing, but in the midst of it all, help us to cling to your promises and give us the strength to keep going through today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.